Hello and welcome to the MCA Broadcast, your fix for everything innovative in advertising production. I'm Pat Murphy and I've been working in this industry for more than 35 years now. I've seen a lot of changes, but know there's plenty more around the corner. Each week on the podcast, you'll get to hear from one of the movers and shakers shaping the world of advertising production for the future. And we'll dive into some of the key challenges facing our sector today and how we're best placed to overcome them. Today, we're talking to Tanya Bogin, who is the Managing Director of Craft Worldwide in London, overseeing end-to-end creative production operations, as well as global campaign localization for IPG partners and direct clients. She's over 14 years of experience in advertising and has been responsible for developing integrated production solutions for clients like Microsoft, Cisco, Nestle, Unilever, and a whole load more. Tanya, welcome to our podcast. It's a great pleasure to have you here today. Thank you so much for having me, Pat. I'm very excited to be here. Now, before we get stuck into the details of your day job, I noticed with interest that you started your career in radio as a talk show host. Did you have Howard Stern looking over your shoulder? Every day, every day. No, no, we were we were terrestrial, though. This was in Philadelphia back in the day. Um, yeah. You know, you still couldn't say some of the things that you uh, can say on podcasts. What got you into that in the first place? Well, it was a, a love of music, actually. I've always been a, love, a lover of, of rock music, grunge, post-punk, garage rock, and, and that's what brought me there in the first place. But then I actually realized once I got there, I really liked the tools and technology that we were using. And I had started building all these relationships with PR, uh, music PR companies, and, and it just sort of snowballed. And then I started managing the station at the you know end of my kind of stint. And then realizing there was probably not that much money in it in the long run, I moved back to New York and got a real job, quote unquote. Sounds exactly what I did. I was in radio in my first career and then decided, well, I need to make some cash and yeah, pay my well. bills. <laughs> so, but I do think radio gets overlooked, actually, because it's, uh, it's an incredibly intimate medium and uh, probably could do with a bit more uh, focus, I think, in our industry. Now, from radio, you moved into the world of transcreation and localization. What is that? What is that as a definition? Yeah, for people who are listening and don't know what that is. Do you know what? It's actually a very big industry in the world. People forget this, but it's it's not a minor thing. People think of it as an afterthought. Oh, crap, I need to translate this. But actually, there are billion pound, billion dollar value companies doing this all over the world. It's a saturated industry. And, you know, in my line, it's really uh, not just adapting words, it's adapting nuance, you know, cultural interpretation. Uh, using cultural insight to produce content that will generate the same feeling in the local market as opposed to just moving the words from one country to the next. And that's a science and an art, I like to say, that's uh, a bit different than just translation. Do you think your background in radio helped you to make that transition? I think part of the business is really building relationships with really key talent because, and we'll talk about this probably later, but it's not just about automation and computers. At the bare bones of it, it's it's a human-powered business and you need to equip those humans with the right cultural cues. So I think my ability to talk to people really helped. You know, and music has a has an artistic significance in language in general. So that's for sure helped, I think. Now, you've been in the business now 14 years, in the world of advertising anyway, and very committed to innovation and technology. How do you see the evolution in production? Oh, gosh. I mean, it's evolving every single day, sometimes every hour. At Craft, we have an internal AI council that just gives on-the-minute updates of every, any new thing that hits the ground, you know, and we're constantly doing R&D on these things. And, and not, from the, not necessarily only from the purpose of just pure curiosity, and we are curious by nature, it's really for client applications. How can we use this new tool to make clients' lives easier, to build solutions for things, to affect brand growth globally and, and authentically? We'll come on to AI a little bit later, but uh, 
it also begs the question around authenticity, brand authenticity. So, you know, what does that mean to you? And how do you kind of make sure that you keep that in the production process? For sure. So to me, brand authenticity has a number of different facets. I think, first of all, given my background, it's meaningful global communication. It's a meaningful presence on the world stage that's real and really talks about what you believe in. That's number one. Number two, it's integrity with core values, right? If you're saying that uh, you're supporting diversity and inclusion and sustainability, prove it. Show the world how you're doing it. And third, it's it's something that's a bit harder for production to get involved in. It's really more on the brand side. It's honesty. You know, how honest are your marketing practices and uh, and are you doing things with integrity? And, and production's role in that is huge, particularly in the first two aspects of it, right? Global, meaningful communication. That's the heart of my job, right? How do we convert a campaign to another market and still elicit the same response, but also ensure that the brand message is consistent, not just culturally appropriate, but consistent. And then sustainability. I mean, you know better than me about the developments in virtual production, LED screens, real-time render engine, CGI, we're using all of that every day and it's cutting down on travel. It's affecting clients' own uh, sustainability priorities by having a team that can move that forward for them. You mentioned doing work or keeping brand authenticity on a global level. How does that translate locally? Because you know there's a lot more personalization going on and particularly at a local level. How do you keep the brand authenticity going? We try to do more and more hyper-customization of content per market. And different markets require different levels of this. You know, when you're talking about a regulatory client, there's limitations to what you can say locally because you've got, you know, global priorities and global legal restrictions and also local legal restrictions. When we're talking about clients that are not in the regulatory space, you can do that with a very strong creative writing team who understands the the global meaning of a campaign, the initial thought, the concept, and can adapt it on a local level without harming the initial messaging from the global team. There's also a relationship that you might have with the local brand teams, and we bridge that between them and the global client because we say, it's not going to change the meaning of the campaign to do it this way in this local market. Let them have their voice. And in terms of hyper-customization of content, again, technology has a big role in this. First of all, collaboration tools, the ability to have our writers and our brand managers actually speak with each other builds trust, um, almost immediate trust, right? Because they feel that, our, oh, these writers can write in my voice, so I'm going to push back less on this centralized approach to production. On the other scale, you know, we'll get, I'm sure we'll get into this more, but synthetic voice, you know, deep fakes, you're able to use a more diverse talent pool to demonstrate local market attractiveness to different talent. What's going to work better in the marketplace? And and they don't necessarily need to even speak the language these days. We can make it look like they do. Let me pick up on what you just talked about there, because there's been quite a bit in the industry news recently about AI use for replacing voiceovers. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about that? As a Because uh, it's quite incredible how that has now refined itself to be incredibly accurate. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about that? Obviously, there's been a lot of talk about it. Well, what a loaded question. I think it's really super cool. I think it's a way to have a new dimension of brand authenticity in the local market. It started a number of years ago with just, oh, you've got an avatar, it's standing like this in front uh, in front of the screen, and it's moving its mouth according to the words. It's not really saying them, but it's kind of fake. And it looked great, but not that great. But we've made such strides in this that you can't really tell the difference. And now, Here's the new development that not everyone's aware of. 
it's not just that we can give an actor, any actor, fake or not or real, um, a voiceover of a language they don't speak. The voiceover can be in their own voice. That is nuts. How I feel about it, again, I think it's incredible. But the, the other part of me is, of course, you know, concerned about it from a, a humanistic, you know, citizen of the world perspective. Sure, this has a lot of implications for data protection, security, fake news, proliferation on the world scene. And that's something that, um, you know, I can have an opinion about, but I'm not necessarily that concerned about it because I'm working within the brand's guidelines of it, you know, mm -hmm. and I have a in-house business affairs team that takes care of all the, the usages and the rights and, and clearing everything and a legal team that, you know, constantly calls me up and says, no, don't do that. Don't do this. So in my environment, it's cool. But on the world stage, there are concerns. Yeah. Do you think it's going to put a whole world of voiceovers out of business? Because even reading about Apple now using those kind of AI-generated voices for doing audiobooks, this is changing a whole industry. It is. It's a super good point, actually, because I've been focusing in my studies. I mean, I've been doing a lot of R&D on this with my team on the, the new roles that AI is going to create in the world, not just the evolution of roles, you know, from, from trans creator to just creator going straight into language, you know, what that means for us in the future. When we talk about VO, it's a hard one because if you're going to get really close to it being authentically, authentically human, and you can probably do tests to see how, you know, with the percentages of that, it will have an impact on the VO industry. Absolutely. It's a reality that I think we have to face and, and see where there are other applications for these voiceover artists because they can then be used to train machines to create those voices, right? So rather than doing it live, they become the trainees. They become the models on which AI voices are based. And I'm just thinking this on the fly, you know, this, this is how quickly these applications come. Sure. I mean, I know we've only picked on one part of the industry because there's a, you know, this is also applicable to music or doing creative development, that kind of stuff. And and I noticed also recently that Apple and some other big brands like Samsung have uh, chosen to ban the use of ChatGPT in their organizations. Do you think that will also be taken up by other brands and become more standardized? It can go either way. I think from an enterprise perspective for businesses, ChatGPT, BARD, what these are, these are large language models. They're generative. They can create content from nothing, right? I think on the one hand, until we figure out the situation around security, data privacy, and most of all, deployment, because you can't parse it from other users, and businesses that are enterprise level are going to have a real difficult time using it internally or externally for that matter, because their content is getting mixed with publicly available content. And until people know what to do with it, I think that's the reason they're sort of banning it internally in some ways. So there's no real governance over this at the moment. I notice also in the last few weeks, there's been a vote in the European Parliament about putting some kind of frameworks and governance around the use of AI. But that doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. Do you think this needs to be done on a global level? Or are we going to have different models and different variations of frameworks in all the different markets? You know, from a simplicity perspective and just thinking of my team, I hope it's done from a more centralized level than on a local level, although that might create more jobs for my business affairs team. I don't know. Um, but again, it's another question. It's, these are really, really interesting things to, to explore. There should be regulation. But, you know, rather than thinking of it from a regulatory perspective, I think the technology needs to evolve to be uh, more adaptable to regulatory requirements, you know. We've come up with an interface for large language models like ChatGPT, which are so easy to engage with. I'm sure that in no time there will be other tools proliferating that use that technology, but can add data security and privacy to it and allow us to get the best out of the applications of it without necessarily putting us at risk of breaching any sort of contracts or you know information security for people. 
So generative AI, it's so cool, you know, and of course we've all been using it. What's its limitations? It's got a few. It's got a few. So in in the transcreation translation industry, you've got something called neural machine translation. And this is predictive AI. It's still AI, but it's predictive. So it's first of all, it's domain based. So you can feed it with specific, you know, high quality information. It produces really accurate results. And secondly, it's predictive. So you kind of know the accuracy you're going to get out of it. And it's privacy and data secure. You know, you can use neural machine translation without the content that you feed into it mixing with anything else. As a translation tool, it's pretty good for long form content. ChatGPT and generative AI is not a translation tool. The accuracy is not up to par and people mistake it for it being the case. And it's not Google Translate. It's not that great. It creates fluency, but not accuracy. That's the difference. Now, add to that the fact that validating that content, you it's, it's really difficult because it's pulling from all sorts of publicly available domains and information. It's not the best for domain-specific requirements. And then again, we're bringing up the copyright infringement, the data privacy, and again, the deployment. If you've got all of these users using this platform altogether, it's a difficult to deploy for specific client usage on its own. We were just talking about using it for local language editorial content. Mm-hmm. And we still know that there needs to be an intervention with real humans. Yeah. Do you think it'll ever get as good to the point where you won't need any translators? I love that question. Everyone always asks me that question. No, I don't. I really don't. Not in my lifetime anyway. And that being said, you know, it's actually subjective because the person you ask, is it good enough? You know, people have different answers to that. I'm a purist. For me, not so much. And I'll give you an example. In 2016... We were working with a big blue chip client. We created a, an agile content newsroom to cover the Rio Olympics in the summer. What did that actually mean? That meant flying 14 copywriters and designers from 14 different countries to one's place, sitting them in a round table, talking to each other, and generating live content on the fly according to anything that would happen you know, during the actual Olympics, right? And releasing that on the fly. It was great. It was amazing. It was costly. It wasn't sustainable, et cetera. Today, how could we do that? A, completely remotely with design automation probably, and using a prompt engineer to generate local language content without a source directly in ChatGPT or BARD. I'm taking the data security part out of this for a second because it's not ready yet. But then what happens with that content when it's done? You don't release it live because you don't know if it's accurate. You don't know how good it is. You don't know if it's going to be culturally effective yet. You still need 14 writers to check it in every language. So it's not going away. The roles are just evolving. Now, let's come back to the subject of sustainability, which is on the top of everybody's priority list right now. <laughs> and, you know, one of the best ways to reach carbon net zero is not to do any production at all. So kind of reuse of content, really. What's your position on sustainability? I know that you have a partnership with AdGreen. Mm. Uh, walk me through that. I have to say uh, it's, our partnership with AdGreen has been very, very good. Our clients have been very amenable to the levies to look at research and, and tracking their their footprint. Um, but uh, my position on sustainability, it's going to change the industry just as much as, you know, generative AI is going to change the industry. My producers, and I'm speaking very honestly, we love the travel in the job. We love going to shoots. We love experiencing that feeling of I'm there, you know. But I think the difference that we have to affect in the people's minds and hearts is really what is the greater purpose of our jobs? What is the role that we have? You know, we work in advertising. It's a difficult thing to reconcile with with value sometimes, depending on the products you support. And to say, 
guys, you may not be able to travel this year because we created this new technology that enables us to use real-time rendering to create uh, authentic backgrounds that look just as if you're on location in Morocco. So you don't need to go to Morocco anymore. I'm really sorry. You know, if it was me, I'd be like, well, I'd rather go to Morocco on vacation anyway, personally. Mm. It's a new way of thinking. It's a new creativity. And I think we should embrace it. And I embrace it. So you're embracing it at craft, yeah. but uh, looking at our own statistics within MCA, we're seeing a kind of reversion back to old behaviors pre-pandemic. Actually, it's worse. We're seeing more people flying to more destinations <laughs> than ever before from a lot of the clients uh, above line agencies. Interesting. Um, is that the same in your experience? Maybe they're trying to get it all in before it's uh, before it's gone. No, uh, it was kind of pent up frustration. They haven't traveled anywhere for a while. What do you think? You know, I think it's hard. I mean, I'd be curious to know what you were comparing it to and what sort of productions were happening back in the past versus now. And it could be a post pandemic reaction, right? From uh, yeah. to the isolation. That's part of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're scrutinizing every production these days around sustainability metrics, not just because we're measuring it through ad green and, and supporting our clients and their own sort of metrics and sustainability priorities. From a, we need to save the world perspective, and I know that's you know very high language, but it's really true. It makes me want to come to work every day knowing that I have an impact on that. So we are scrutinizing shoots as much as our clients are. We're helping our clients make those decisions, and our brands are bringing on board sustainability divisions and directors who are overseeing that and holding us to account. That's right. So we have to hold ourselves to account internally in the same way, and we've done the same. We've brought on sustainability teams just within craft, in addition to McCann World Group, and. We work on an IPG level to make sure that these practices are in the hearts and minds of people. I see you have Anthony Falco now having joined you from Angreen, yeah? That's the one I meant, yeah. We're really lucky to have him. Great guy, and um, you're very lucky to have Anthony. Now, measuring is one thing, right? But that doesn't mean to say that people might still want to change behavior. Measuring your carbon footprint is one thing, but you still need to change the design of your productions. Uh-huh. Virtual production is obviously a, one particular thing that we've been doing recently, and I was at uh, the ANA Financial Management Conference a couple of weeks ago where I put a stake in the ground. I said, look, we'll make a commitment at MCA to get to net zero or an option for net zero by 2025. Do you think that's something that's achievable? Can you help us with that? I hope so. I hope so. I'd like to think it is achievable. I think that part of it uh, is not just on the production side. It's a marriage between production and the creative teams, right? And right now, the more production gets upstream in the creative thought process, the more sustainability goals down the line can be met. So essentially, we have to equip our our production team with a consultative mind to think on the fly about how can we use new technologies to create more sustainable productions and be upfront working with the creatives at the forefront with the brands, helping them understand exactly how they can structure their productions down the line to fulfill that goal. Think outside the box, right? And that means that we all have to get into sort of the same mentality. If the production team is ready to go, but the creative teams aren't thinking in that way or vice versa, the process breaks down. That's a really good point. So do you think the right questions are being asked at the right time in the creative briefing, creative execution part of the process? We're trying. Internally, we're trying. Is it an education thing with with creative teams? It's an education thing across both. I'm not going to pinpoint any one limitation on creativity or the production teams. There's a lot of responsibility that also falls on the client's shoulders because brand teams and the global client have their own ideas about what they want to produce. It's our job to work together to influence that big unachievable idea and think, well, what if you did it this way? You know, 
And we're doing different kinds of seminars and workshops internally between the teams to build those connections, build that trust so that not just with McCann, you know, who we sit in the same building with, but we're agency agnostic. We work with so many different people, so many different agencies and creative teams. And the best way, I think, is to just show proof points. Look what we did for this client. You know, look what we did for that client. Look how that's changed their ROI on some of the products and services that they're selling in the marketplace. Look at the attention that's brought them on the world stage. We also do a lot of, you know, pro bono work. We do a lot of work for mental health organizations, sustainability. You know, we're, we're doing a proactive brief now for Greenpeace, for instance. And that, again, it, it changes people's mentality. It makes it feel, I want to be part of that. They almost get this sort of production FOMO and that changes behavior. Now, we talked to Richard Glasson from Hogarth a little while back cool. on one of our other podcasts, and we touched a little bit on values and some of the stuff that he gets involved in outside of the business. Well, tell, tell me a bit about some of your passions outside of work. Well, outside of work, I'm very involved in female empowerment and counseling for young women with different mental health conditions. So I mentor a few women in that. Um, I meet with them on a weekly basis. I also serve as a mentor for young up-and-coming people in the production industry as well. It makes me feel like I'm helping them break through the barriers and get closer to where I got to quicker. So it's interesting you touch on that. Does that also have an impact on how you hire people in the business? Absolutely. And actually, that now touches into another brand, authenticity, quality, run diversity, and inclusion. We are doing some really cool stuff around marrying different kinds of production with the type of profile and talent that you use to create that work. So think about agile content self-shooting directors, um, uh, more junior talent doing shoots and learning learning the ropes. And we're bringing in a more diverse talent pool to kind of, again, advertising has naturally been kind of a closed barrier business. It used to be who you knew. We have partnerships with the women's organization. We've got partnerships with different universities trying to bring in interns as well. And we've actually managed, we brought in like you know three interns over the last year and they're now working for us full time as junior editors, as junior directors, as junior producers, and they're growing and building their, their skill set. Before we go, this is a question we always ask our guests when they come on here. It's become a bit of a highlight of our podcast. What's your favorite ad of all time? It's a really hard one. You know, I, I, I could choose something that, you know, makes my clients look good, or I could choose something that really means something to me. I'd rather the second one. Pick something that really means something to you. I, okay, sure. No problem. So on the topic of diversity, inclusion, and women empowerment, there's a Nike ad. They keep re-releasing it, I think, but the first time I saw it was in 2016. It's called Dream Crazier. It's probably one of the most universal advertisements I've seen in terms of its emotional appeal to women everywhere and, and you know, just people who are you know have challenges to get where they are. It, it's a vignette kind of ad. I think I've seen it. And it, it. pictures like women getting yeah. angry, getting pissed off in yeah, sports. Yeah. And they're crying and they do it anyway. And people thought they were crazy. And it's just, it resonates so much with me. Not just because that sports, you know, gives them that sort of dramatic feeling of accomplishment. But the fact that these women are able to just release, let loose, not worry about what people think about them. It really, it really hits home for me and my own journey. That's a fantastic ad, actually. We're going to post it up on uh, our podcast page. So uh, thanks very much for that suggestion. Brilliant. Tanya, thank you so much for joining us on our broadcast today. And we hopefully talk to you again soon. I might see you. Are you going to Cannes this year? Not this year, but we'll see each other anyway. I'll go to Lisbon and visit you. You come to Lisbon or we'll have lunch in London. Sounds fantastic. Good. Fantastic. Great stuff. 
Today we talked to Tanya Bogan, Managing Director of Craft in London. I want to say a big thank you to Tanya for talking to me today. We had a very insightful conversation about tech and brand authenticity and found more uh, about how craft is using the new technology to give the brands a unique experience. To find out more about the MCA podcast, please head to thepodcast.com where you'll find details on all of my guests, links to the favorite ads and full transcriptions of all the episodes as well. If you have any comments, questions or feedback, please email us at podcast at murphycop.com. I'm Pat Murphy, CEO of MCA. Do come and connect with us on LinkedIn or Instagram, of which all of the links in the notes of this episode will be there. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks again to Tanya, my team at MCA, and to my production team at What Goes On Media. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Hold up. 